0: uh, verses 16 through 23. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by its sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In this passage, we see the simplicity that comes in following Jesus. And the first thing that we see here in verses 16 through 19 is that Jesus is the aim. That Jesus is the aim of our Christian lives. And as Paul writes to these Colossian believers, and he writes to these primarily Gentile believers, letting them know that the aim of their lives is first and foremost Jesus Christ. First thing he points out here, uh, actually before that, uh, it uh, it made me think of, I know I use this illustration probably too much, but Apollo 11. Uh, Apollo 11 is a fascinating story. And if you saw the movie based on that, You remember this scene where they're trying to re-enter Earth's atmosphere, and all of their systems have gone down, and so in order to get themselves safely into the atmosphere, they have to position the Earth in the window of the Apollo 11 and angle it just right so that they don't burn up on re-entry or bounce back into the universe, and Uh, My friend, Andy, who was here uh, a while back uh, from school, uh, his grandfather was actually on the team that helped develop that strategy for them to reenter. But it required a focus, and Paul's using this similar thought, uh, not because he knew of Apollo 11, obviously, but he's instructing the same thing to make sure that the very center of the focus, the very center of your aim, is Jesus. And in verses 16 and 17, he tells them that Jesus is the substance of the shadows. He's the substance of the shadows. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The early church, the early believers, especially as the gospel goes into the Gentile world, struggle with how to balance the Jewish law. And to what extent do these new Gentile believers, are they required to uphold the Old Testament law? And here he's addressing this in these verses of these believers who are Gentiles and have no upbringing in Jewish law. And now they profess faith in Christ. And there are Jewish Christians who are saying, well, if you really want to be a Christian, you've got to live according to these Jewish laws from the Old Testament. We still struggle with the same thing. To what extent do we take the Old Testament and to to what degree does it still hold sway over our lives today? What Paul's saying here is that fundamentally, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament is a shadow. It's a shadow that's pointing to a reality. Now, if you see somebody walking down the street and you see their shadow, obviously the shadow isn't tangible. It's the reflection. It's being caused by something or someone who's tangible. And Paul's saying, don't get caught up on the shadow because the substance is Jesus. The old covenant, the Old Testament, all of it was ultimately about pointing to Jesus. Pointing to the Messiah who was to come. And not only does it point to Jesus, but it's fulfilled in Jesus. The point of the Old Covenant wasn't to say, if you do X, Y, and Z, you can be in a right relationship with God. It was meant to say, because you can't keep X, Y, and Z, you need a way to become right with God. It's revealing our need for a Savior. And so we we still get very caught up in, okay, what do we take from the Old Testament? What do we not? And I don't mean for this to be a, a message on hermeneutics, but... How do we sort that out? Because there's some things that we we grab onto and say, okay, this still applies. And there's other things like, eh, not so much. If you've ever watched a prosperity preacher on TV and they're saying, if you just give $100, then God is going to bless you. And here's 35 Bible passages to prove it. All 35 were from the old covenant. Because that's the old covenant. The old covenant's been fulfilled in Christ. We're now under a new covenant, a different covenant. Now, we can look at Old Testament verses and say, oh, well, here's a a verse that says don't get a tattoo, but there's also a verse that would say stop eating bacon. Ooh, now we're stepping on toes. Okay, maybe the tattoo thing, but don't take away my bacon. What about the cotton polyester shirt you're wearing? There's Bible verses against that. When if you notice a spot of mildew in your shower, you probably just get a little spritz and scrub it down. Old Testament says you gotta take everything out of your house, purify the entirety of the house, purify everything, bring everything back in your house, and if you notice you missed a spot, do it all over again. How do we pick and choose? You just say, well this one, I'm going to kind of I'm going to plant my flag on that one but not the other one. but it helps if we begin with this understanding that the entirety of the old covenant was meant to point to the need for a savior and has now been fulfilled in Jesus. and Jesus, as we'll remember in just a little bit, through his blood has initiated a new covenant. So this is why Paul's saying, don't, don't let people judge you based on the shadow. Based on the Jewish laws, he's not saying, hey, Jewish Christians, stop doing that stuff. He's saying, if you want to do that, fine. But don't tell the Gentile Christians that they're somehow inferior followers of Jesus because they're not. Because it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. And sometimes in our well-intentioned efforts to follow Jesus, we make legalism more important than Jesus. We make the rules, the do's and the don'ts of being a Christian more important than Jesus himself. But the problem with that is it's external. It says nothing about the heart. Did you know that you can keep every one of the Old Testament commands and still have a heart that desires nothing of Jesus? It says nothing about where is your heart in relationship to Jesus. But above that, this is why Jesus, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the law and says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. You've heard it said all this about what you do externally, but my concern is your heart. And in fact, he was asked in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And Paul echoes a portion of this in Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the question that Paul is essentially presenting is, what does it mean to be a Christian? For a Colossian church primarily of Gentiles who know nothing of the Jewish law, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? He says all of these old covenant things that people are, are putting over your head, they're simply a shadow that's pointing to the fullness of Jesus. How are we defined? Do we define ourselves primarily by the things that we do and don't do? It's very easy to fall into that. You know, well, what do you believe? Well, I'm against this, I'm against this, I'm for this, I'm for this. As followers of Jesus, how are we defined? Jesus says all of it is summed up in this love God with everything you've got and love others like you love yourself. But I don't have any tattoos. Do you love God with everything you've got? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? I don't eat bacon. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? I keep the Sabbath. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? These are the questions. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But Not only is Jesus the aim in that he's the substance of the shadow, he's also the source of growth. He's the source of our growth in verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Notice that last chunk in there. Grows with a growth that is from God. Hopefully we can all answer this question, but who is it that makes a church grow? It's Jesus, right? Amen. Who is it that makes your spiritual life grow? Jesus. Sometimes we think it's us. That because I'm so diligent in prayer, because I'm so diligent in the scriptures, and because I'm so faithful that I've now attained to this holy status. It's Jesus. Jesus. We can get caught up in the gifts that God has given us and, and boast about the gifts. And that, that's essential. Paul's getting at verses 18 and 19, that the visions and the worship of angels, all of these special things that are happening. And it's like, it was Jesus that made you grow. One of my professors, Terry Wardle, said that all the spiritual disciplines that we build into our lives are good and they're important, but they fundamentally do one thing. They serve as sails on a boat. Now, if you take a boat on the water, and there's no wind, and you raise up this beautiful, gorgeous, elaborate sail, what good does the sail do? Nothing. That beautiful, expensive, fancy sail is 100% dependent on the wind. All of these disciplines that we build into our lives, they're just creating a place where God can show up. But if he doesn't, we're going nowhere. So any growth that we even experience in our own Christian lives, any special gifts that God gives us, any special visions or revelations that God might give us in our spiritual journey are all a gift from him. They're not for us to say, look at the level I've attained. No, I'll pat myself on the back. It was all from Jesus. It was all a gift from him. And so he's saying, don't let people boast and make you feel bad because they've reached a certain level. And sometimes what happens is we reach a certain level spiritually and we look at people who haven't gotten to our level. (laughs) I remember being down there. Well, you were down there once. It was only because of Jesus that you got to where you are. So in time, Jesus will get them there too. Just calm down and let Jesus work. It's not because of me that I might be becoming like Jesus, because in order for me to say it's because of my efforts that I'm becoming like Jesus, that's like me saying, I have worked so hard, I've become a tomato. No, I mean, I can get as round as I want, as red as I want, I'm still not a tomato. I would need to completely transform the essence of who I am. And in order for me to be a reflection of Jesus requires a complete transformation of who I am, and I cannot do that. No amount of rules or regulations or disciplines or do's and don'ts can get me there. It's all a work of God's grace. The second thing he points out, not only is Jesus the aim, but Jesus is the pattern. Verses 20 to 23. You know, if, does anybody so? I... I can sew a hole in a pair of sweatpants, but it's not going to be pretty, but it's going to close the hole. That's about the extent of it, but uh, Linda's not here, but folks like Linda, you know, they're so good at sewing, and Janelle's really good at sewing, and you get these patterns, and this is absolute gibberish to me. I don't know if someone looks and says, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. I have no idea what any of that means. I wouldn't even know where to begin in doing something like that, but a sewing pattern pattern basically says, if you want to create this garment, follow this. Duplicate this, and you will have that garment. Jesus is the pattern that our lives are to be based on, which means, first of all, that we're not mastered by rules. We're not mastered by rules. Verses 20 and 22. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Again, no amount of external obedience or external deeds are going to make us like Christ. It doesn't always equate with Christ likeness. I know people who have memorized the Bible backwards and forwards, but their heart wants nothing to do with Jesus. All of these things, it's become how, as evangelicals, we kind of measure spiritual growth. How often do you read your Bible? How many Bible verses have you memorized? How much do you pray? How often are you in church? None of that guarantees that your heart is soft towards Jesus. It means that you've simply fallen into a routine of doing certain things. Thomas Aquinas, in his classic work, The Imitation of Christ, he says, If we esteem our progress in religious life to consist only in some exterior observances, our devotion will quickly be at an end. Why is that the case? Because, like anything, uh, we're about to, a matter of weeks, we'll be celebrating New Year's. And if you go to one of the area Planet Fitnesses, I used to belong to a Planet Fitness, and I joined kind of mid-year. And so I wasn't prepared for what I was going to walk into the first time I went early in January. There's not an open machine in the place. Everybody's there. Wait two weeks. It'll be empty again. We all start these things full of vim and vigor and enthusiasm, but they quickly die away. And what Akempus is saying is that if we base the, the core of our walk with Christ on us doing certain things, and our efforts, those efforts will eventually die out. After all, what does it mean to be a good husband? We can create a checklist of what does it mean to be a good husband, But simply fulfilling all the things on the checklist, does that make one a good husband? We focus on doing right things and believing right things. And there's importance to both of those. But the most important factor is being in right relationship with Jesus. Being in a right relationship with Jesus. You can have somebody who is doing all the right things and believes all the right things, but they haven't grown spiritually in years. Or you can have somebody who's really rough around the edges, doesn't do all the perfect things a Christian should do, but their heart is on fire for Jesus. Give it five years. And that person's going to surpass the person who has no fire in their heart for Jesus. Simply observing externals does not... Get the job done I mean going back to the analogy of a husband ladies how about this what if you found out that your husband says I I don't cheat on my wife because it's wrong that sounds good doesn't it there's a problem what's his reason because it's wrong to cheat ladies anyone want to offer what might be a better answer Thank you. You can follow the rule. Say, well, it's wrong to cheat, so I'm not going to cheat. But that doesn't mean they love you. It just means they don't want to break the rule. The answer that's the safest is because I love you. Because the trick is, if, if we're only being guided by an external rule, we'll find a loophole eventually. This is what Satan does. Satan shows you the loophole. Go back to the Garden of Eden. And the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. If you notice the story, again, biblical stories are written intentionally. It's not just kind of, oh, here's what happened. There's an intention about what is said and what's not said. As we're introduced to Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent arrives on the scene and begins to convince the woman to eat of the fruit. What that tells me is that the serpent didn't force Adam and Eve to go look at it. He simply went to where they already were. They were already there looking at the fruit. Like, oh, why can't we eat that? It looks good. And along comes the serpent. That looks good, doesn't it? And then he begins to help them find a loophole to the system. Satan even tries this tactic with Jesus when he's in the wilderness for 40 days. You're hungry, right? You want people to follow you, right? You want the Jewish people to recognize you as the Messiah. Here's even some Bible verses to support doing what I'm suggesting you do. The Garden of Eden, the serpent, didn't pluck the fruit off the tree and ram it in Eve's mouth. All he does is stand next to her and say, there's a loophole. He doesn't force Jesus to do anything in the wilderness. He says, you're overlooking a loophole. That's all Satan does in our lives. Oh, there's a loophole. And if we're only governing our hearts on external restrictions, he will come along and say, you missed this loophole. You can do the thing you actually want to do and not have the consequences. Because there's a loophole. If you're only governed by external restrictions, you will find a loophole because that's what Satan's going to try to convince you of. The only way to counter that is to be driven by the heart. So Jesus, as the pattern, he's also the path of righteousness. Verse 23, it says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Stopping the loophole. There was a man who was caught in an addiction and he, asked his pastor or told his pastor, do whatever you need to do to get me to stop doing this. It's an impossible request. Unless that pastor lives with you 24-7 and goes everywhere you go and manhandles you, there's nothing the pastor can do to stop you from doing what you want to do. This person was depending on external safeguards rather than the safeguard of his heart. Living according to these self-made religious do's and don'ts does not help us grow in love for Jesus. First Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The way to avoid the indulgence of the flesh is to follow the pattern of Jesus. Why did Jesus not give in to temptation when Satan was tempting him? Not only did he use scripture, but fundamentally, Jesus' heart was completely devoted to the Father, and he would not do anything to violate his relationship with the Father. A husband whose heart is devoted to his wife out of love is not going to find a loophole to try to cheat on her. But the problem that we face is there's no class that can do this. We can have classes that teach scripture and we need those and teaching theology and all these things, but none of it can change our hearts unless we want our hearts to be changed. What ends up happening though, we get so full of head knowledge and we get so good at the do's and don'ts, we become the referees of everybody else. Well, you broke rule number 8.7. But What about us? we've all been there I'm sure you're sitting in church and hearing a sermon and you're like I wish that per- I hope that person is paying attention because they really need to hear that it's a lot harder to say Lord you got me Lord you're speaking to them I, all I can handle is what you're saying to me and responding to that I remember probably the worst sermon I ever heard was from a dear pastor uh, my, a good friend of mine who is one of my groomsmen his dad was a, a baptist preacher and he was well advanced in years he preached a sermon on samson and spent 80 percent of the sermon preaching on tithing i have no idea how he connected the two i don't remember for the life of me there may not have been a connection between the two he just jumped from one to the other but still as this train wreck was going on, I'm like, Lord, what do you want to say to me? What are you trying to say to me? How do you want me to apply this? To not just stack up more head knowledge, not just put it uh, more on our list of do's and don'ts, but Jesus, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do in response? How are you trying to make me more like yourself? This is the simplicity that is ours in Christ. It's not about religion or do's and don'ts. We say it's about a relationship with Jesus, right? That's what we tell our non-Christian friends. I'm not into religion. I'm into a relationship with Jesus. But then as we follow Jesus, it becomes very much a religion. These are the things you do and don't do. And there's a place for those. But they have to simply assist our hearts in what our hearts want. They can't govern our hearts. It's a life governed by a relationship with Jesus. Fundamentally, as we wrestle with sin, we don't have a sin problem. We have a love problem. Because we're finding some satisfaction or fulfillment in something that we should be finding in Jesus. And so we we put up all of these parameters and these external safeguards to stop sinning when the problem is our hearts. If our hearts aren't turning to find fulfillment in Jesus, they're always going to keep going back. To that thing we're trying to keep ourselves from would you define your walk with Jesus as simple I follow Jesus I love Jesus and yeah there's a lot of other things that go along with that but all of those other things are simply meant to help facilitate my growing love for Jesus it's very easy for us And it's a battle the Colossians had to wrestle with of all of a sudden all of these rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and promote yourself and through your own religion, make yourself grow. All of a sudden, all those things can become more important than Jesus. Maybe this morning there's something in your heart saying, yeah, I've gotten caught up in the system of Christianity. I want to be recaptured by the person of Christianity. Let's pray. Jesus, all of us, as we walk with you and follow you, have desire for there to be things that help facilitate our walk with you. It's why we don't do certain things. Lord, fundamentally, we find loopholes. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney.